Certainly the United States that I was born in is no longer the United States I know. It is a country to which I travel warily now, unsure of its consent of me, and unsure of my consent of it. If I keep my mouth shut, I can pass for Italian, especially if my daughter QZ is with me, singing Italian nursery rhymes with her flawless Roman accent. But when I open my mouth to speak, I reveal myself as other. My Italian is very good, I am often told, but in the same tenor of compliment I offer to QZ when she successfully zips up her own jacket, a sincere appreciation of her accomplishment, surely, but offered with full awareness of her weight class in these matters. At the first hint of English, they often take me for British, probably because it is so rare for a white American to speak any other language, however sloppily. But I tell them no, that I am Americana, that my Italian daughter, Mia Figlia Italiana, was born in California. Mention of the Golden State sees their eyes inevitably widen, sparkle, then a deep sigh, Ah, perhaps a kiss offered to the air. Most Italians I've met have either visited California or have teased an itinerary in their mind. Los Angeles, San Francisco, they exclaim, wistful, just as many Americans might smile and murmur, Venice, Tuscany, shaking themselves from the dreamy appreciation. The next question is usually some version of, why would you want to live a Roma? A laugh. Romans have an affectionate, familial disdain for their beautiful, filthy, ancient, dysfunctional, magnificent city. Though they also know, I imagine, as all Italians must, that their country, this Mediterranean peninsula lined with pristine beaches dotted with crystal clear volcanic lakes, towering mountains, perfectly preserved hilltop villages and rolling hills cradling vineyards as far as eyes can see. Their country, in some small way, my children's country, is gorgeous. Much like California, which nevertheless lacks some of the solemnity of a history laid bare, right there on the very surface. I am fortunate that mine is seen as a largely equitable exchange, trading in the wonders of California for those of Italy. When we first arrived in Rome more than three years ago, I was told by my very first Italian teacher that Italians are struggling to adapt to immigration, to the very concept. Unlike America, a country founded, celebrated, and built by foreign hands, foreign minds, Italy, she said, has been, for most Italians alive today, always a country that people were trying to emigrate from. Never a country others sought. For a tour, yes, but not for a life. The sudden influx of economic migrants and refugees escaping violent conflict, it is harder, she said, for Italians to understand. The grandeur and wealth of the Roman Empire is preserved in the architecture and the moneyed families whose wealth expands back centuries. But Italy, she explained, for Italians alive today, has never been a rich country. It is, in fact, a country with a youth unemployment rate of more than 35%. And so Italians have always left and searched themselves of opportunity promised on foreign shores. They never manufactured 
and then foisted upon the world an Italian dream. And to the extent that one exists, it does not involve building a successful life as much as retiring from one. I think of this as I walk through Rome with my children, who have never known life anywhere but Italy. I think of it as we greet the African refugees who sweep our neighborhood sidewalks for change. And I think of it on one of our first visits to the park after pandemic lockdown begins to ease and public spaces reopen, when another parent asks where we have come from, and here in California does not smile or sigh or laugh his playful disbelief, but instead recoils ever so slightly. Welcome to Pan Parenting. I am your host, Liz Waz, a white American mother raising two biracial children in Rome, Italy. Ever since becoming a mother, I have become more aware of the influence of fear on my choices and thoughts, on the emotional ecosystem encircling my family's life. Pan Parenting is a year-long project to seek out, confront, dispel, and destroy the fears that threaten to damage our well-being. In a year of conversation with parents from across the globe, parents of all nations, I will find a better, more courageous and fulfilling way to live. As a woman, a partner, an artist, a mother, abroad and at home, wherever the latter shall be. America? There's a note of fear and disapproval. Something I've never experienced after years in this country. Quickly, I explained that yes, we're American, but we live in Rome. We've lived in Rome for years. We've not had any recent contact with America. He calms. But I can't stop thinking about it. About how, so suddenly, I find myself hailing from a country that represents not beauty and money and success, but political incompetence widespread delusions, stupidity, and death. I enjoy celebrating other people's national holidays as much, if not more, than my own, in part because I'm put off by the myopia of so many in my country who have used patriotism and American exceptionalism as smokescreens for a woeful ignorance of the rest of the world. Give me Australia Day or Bastille Day or India's Republic Day though I will never be a citizen of any of them. Consent is important here. The consent of one country to receive the traveler, the consent of the traveler to return home, and the consent of his home country to allow him to return. For Ernest Renan, the members of a nation, in a metaphorical sense, have a daily plebiscite in which they reaffirm belonging to the nation. Renan knew He was being idealistic when he suggested that land disputes be settled by the inhabitants of those disputed areas. Still, I'm attracted naively to the notion of a citizenry's consent. Is consent something the travel writer should consider writing about? How freely can she move between borders? How difficult is it for the people whose country she visits to travel in the other direction? When we were preparing to move, We visited the Italian consulate in San Francisco to apply for our visas. 
While we were waiting, I heard a young man explaining his reason for requesting a visa. He was attending the wedding of a friend and had booked travel to Italy. He planned to stay in the country for four days. I was reminded of the power of my passport, knowing that I could enter Italy for any reason and be granted an immediate 90-day visa that I would not have to apply for. That I could easily overstay that visa, as countless Americans have, without facing much repercussion. And though I now make annual trips to the large immigration center on the outskirts of Rome to extend my permit of stay, I cannot help but see the people who surround me in those offices, many of whom I know have a more tenuous hold on their life here, and fewer options to return to. What does it mean to raise children in a country that is not yours, but is becoming quite naturally theirs? This is a question millions of people face in America every day, one fewer Americans face abroad. And it is a question that can't be answered without an honest accounting of all the ledgers, privileges, and oppressions. I decided to call Robin Hemley, a former professor, prolific author of many books, including his most recent Borderline Citizen, a fantastic collection of essays exploring the nationhood and travel and privileges of expatriatism, and more significantly for my purposes, a more experienced parent than I one who has raised daughters into early adulthood and adolescence, and whose youngest children are themselves biracial global citizens of a sort. One, a young woman now, who I remember best as a toddler who stunned me with her confidence and flexibility moving through the world when I traveled with her parents as a graduate student. And we talked, his frequent flights suddenly all grounded as we were both of us settling into pandemic lockdown. I remember... With my uh, older kids who are now in their 20s, people saying, oh, I want to wait till the children can enjoy their travel. I want to wait till they're older. And I thought, well, you know, I think they'll enjoy it. They just might not remember it when they're very young. But I'd rather sort of get them used to traveling early mm. rather than, you know, wait. Because I, I think that now, you know, my daughters are really good travelers. I think that's so wise. You know, I hear this argument about children not remembering things. And I think you're right that even if they don't remember it, it's still a time when it can become just a part of how they move through the world so much easier. And so there's a value in that. I don't know. I find those, those arguments to be a little short-sighted in the ways that some of these experiences can become part of who you are, even if you don't have memories. Uh, exactly. Things are imprinted on you regardless. It just makes it easier if you travel early with them and they get used to that. And what they remember also is pretty interesting because after that Philippine trip, Shoshi and Margie and I went to Turkey, to Istanbul. And Shoshi, one of Shoshi's earliest memories is of these Turkish school children surrounding her and sort of giving her a lot of attention. You know, she was really young. I mean, it might have even been before that trip to the Philippines, but she was very young. And I think, well, how can she remember that? But she swears she does. Our daughter is now about to be three. She turns three in two weeks. And so first memories probably have just happened or are about to happen. And I wonder about that sometimes. What is going to stick? I remember certain things that I thought were going to stick that I remember talking to Shoshi about 
And then maybe for a year or so, I didn't talk about it. And now she doesn't remember these things anymore. It's funny because you think sometimes this memory will be imprinted forever. But often it's actually a fairly bland memory. I remember things from when I was, I lived in Manhattan until I was five. And I remember a lot from that time. I even remember dreams from that time. But the thing is, what's funny, I love to hear the memories of my kids because sometimes from a really early age, it'll be this vague memory that you have to piece together. They'll say, remember when we went to that garden, you know, and there was this big tree and uh, there was a hole in the tree. And then, you know, it takes you a while, but you're, you piece it together and you say, yeah, I, I remember that. That was, you, you were awfully young to remember that, but that's yeah. a true memory. Wow. I, I think back, especially now that I have two children, I think back often to the trip that I took with you and a group of students to the Philippines 15 yeah, years two, ago. Um, 2005, yeah, yes, I remember. Yes. And your daughter was just a toddler at the time. I remember being just amazed at what a enthusiastic and flexible traveler she was. Mm, and, yeah. and I have thought of that over the years. When we became parents, I thought of her and the way in which she seemed so comfortable moving through all of these spaces and traveling by plane and boat and jeep and um and really just holding that up as a goal thanks yeah my daughter shoshi she must have been two back then but she was kind of born traveling in a way i was on sabbatical when she was born in the philippines in fact she was born during another health crisis the sars crisis and when we flew back from the Philippines to the States, she was only, I think, four months old. And we actually had to transit through Hong Kong. And I remember that was like the first time she wore a mask, you know, when wow. she was four years old. <laughs> I did just finish your book, Borderline Citizen. And I, I oh, really enjoyed it. I wanted to talk about it a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah. One of the essays that I really liked and that one, one of the ones that I felt connected to the most was present, which I thought was a mm. just such a wonderful essay about travel and family and the choices that both demand of us. And one of the things you write about in that essay is the racism and the colorism that follows your wife, Margie, mm. and then by extension, you around the world. And you share this yes. experience. One of the things you share in that essay is the experience you can live anywhere in the world for a year and you're looking for a place and you're mm. considering these places that have been lovely to you or for you. And some of them are being ruled out because of the receptions of either Margie or of the two of you as a couple. This essay really resonated with me as myself, also the, the white half of an interracial union. I've often right. said, you know, if it were just me, I'd live in such and such a place or I'd visit such and such a place, but it's not. Right. When you think about all of, you know, the many, many years now that you've been with Margie, I was thinking there, there might be ways in which being in that relationship can make the world in some ways maybe smaller in that you don't feel as many places as welcoming of your family as they are maybe of just you, but then also ways in which it might make it if not larger than just more complex or in some way more comprehensible? I'm not sure, but I was just wondering, as someone who travels so much, how has being in this relationship 
affected how you travel or how you think about movement through the world? Well, I think it's affected me pretty substantially. I obviously can't look through Margie's eyes, but she's great to sort of remind me of certain things like my white privilege, you know, and it's not a constant thing, but I've learned to try to understand that the way I move through the world is not the way everyone moves through the world. And actually, that's one of the focal points of this book, too. Travel is is a privilege, and it's a privilege on a lot of different levels. And so I think being married to Margie, that's affected me in a lot of ways. And and it's been great for our daughters, too, because our daughters are half Filipina and Jewish and really sort of world citizens in a way that they're very aware of. And they're very aware of how they sort of sit in the world and walk around and their relationship to different cultures. They're strong and are very sure of themselves, but also, you know, not fools. They also know there are places where, I mean, there's prejudice all around us all the time. When Margie and I were first dating, I remember we were in the Pacific Northwest and we'd be with my daughters from my first marriage who are white. And people would look at us constantly (laughs) trying to figure out our story. After a while, we kind of became inured to it. We I'm sure Margie noticed probably more than I did, but we tended to walk through the world more confidently in terms of as a family unit. But I think the world, at least the world we live in, has certainly become in general much more accepting of interracial relationships than certainly when I was a kid. It's very complex in in the way that it makes you look at the world because everything's always contingent and and your families that are not blended in this way are always still making negotiations. It's just these these negotiations with the world are a little more evident on the surface. When Margie visited, we often went to Lucky Plaza, the slightly run-down shopping center that is a kind of Filipino enclave full of Filipino grocery stores, places to send money home, and Filipino eateries crammed on Sundays with Filipinos, many of them domestic helpers, on their day off. On these visits in Margie's company, I relaxed in this otherwise tense city and felt almost at home. But I wasn't Pinoy, and there were enormous and obvious differences between me and real overseas foreign workers, even though I regularly sent remittances home to Iowa for my Pinoy wife and American cat. We were more like exclaves of one another. Some separations I know are forever, but ours I hoped was temporary, and each time I retrieved Margie from Changi Airport, I willed the cab driver not to share his opinions on foreigners as we watched the city skyline unfold before us like so many cheerfully wrapped presents as yet unopened. Wow. I found that paragraph to be one of the most thought-provoking in the book. I think because it was so personal, but through the intimacy, touches upon so many complicated aspects of geopolitics 
and identity and privilege and freedom of movement, all the incredibly different ways of being a foreigner. We think a lot about our position here in Italy, and we're not the foreigners who are being abandoned on boats that are refused dockage. I don't know what to do with that awareness, except that I feel like I have to keep it close. It was really interesting to me reading this essay in particular and the whole book, just the way in which you're thinking about your position as being part of something much larger that's happening in these specific spaces, but also within your family and also on this global level. Well, I mean, I thought a lot about that. And I also thought about the differences in words, like we're called expats. Refugees are not called expats. Migrant workers are not called expats. It's a word that has a lot of privilege attached to it. OFWs are not expats. And I thought it's so interesting how there are these enclaves also of foreigners often who, uh, certainly in Singapore, the, all the foreign professors are sort of clumped together in these housing, these sort of luxurious housing projects put together very purposefully. You know, it's a very comfortable lifestyle and it's easy to forget or ignore that there are other people moving around or contributing to the country or trying to survive in the country who don't have that kind of privilege. And I think the current epidemic is showing up, I mean, it's certainly showing up a lot of these kinds of inequities. Singapore was doing very well in flattening its curve, but what happened was that there are all these cramped dormitories for migrant workers, and now they've got a an enormous flare-up of COVID cases because of these migrant workers who are kept in pretty poor conditions. This virus is showing us in very stark contrast the differences in the way people are treated. Yeah, yeah. I'm very curious to see what what lessons from this experience stick. I've spoken to a lot of people who are hopeful, somewhat optimistic about the lessons learned. I'm not cynical. I'm just a little worried that we won't learn necessarily the right lessons. I hope we do, but I I worry that we won't. I've said in an interview recently that several months ago, before this even happened, that sometimes the only time that we can act in concert is when we have a meteor about to hit us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We need, I think one of the great failings of humanity is that we can't see very far past our own noses. We can't see a crisis in the future. We can only see the crisis right in front of us. And I was referring mostly to global warming, but I think it's true with this too. I hope people don't go back to business as usual. And often, as I think some of the the work in this book points out, We often don't even see clearly the crises in the past. That would help as well. Even if we couldn't see the future, if we could more clearly see and learn from the past, it'll be something to watch. I'm not overcome with optimism, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to hold on to a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important. And of course, you know, we can also make individual decisions too. You know, on an individual level, there's definitely hope for optimism. I don't know. I, I, I feel still very connected to all my friends, you know, wanting to check up on them. I think that for me, at least, when this is over, hopefully, I think it's also going to reorient me in a good way to my family. Mm. 
is, as you say, I have been quite a frequent traveler. And so that brings me away a lot. I sort of love the simple domestic pleasures anyway. And I love cooking for my family. In my family, at least we all have these individual projects now. My youngest daughter is cleaning out and wanting to paint our little clubhouse. Margie is painting our family room. We're trying to clean out our garage and basement. And we're doing things together that we had put off for a long time. And I'm, I'm hopeful that these kinds of activities will continue, not to, not just to live in a less cluttered house, but also the sort of the sense of the tightness yeah. of our family yeah. unit. That has me thinking about another thing I, I wanted to ask you about, which is in that same essay present that you just read from, you mentioned the fact that there was a period of time when you were in Singapore and Margie and your daughters were in the States. And then there was a period where your daughters came to stay with you in Singapore before Margie. And it was just the three of you, this father-daughter triad. You mentioned, I think, that it was something that was really good for the three of you in terms of your relationship. That was a number of years ago now. I'm so curious if you feel that time that you spent with them has had any lasting impact on how you relate, if you can see echoes of that still. Absolutely. I've been thinking about this a lot. Like a lot of families, you know, we get into little spats and fights. I find that when we're all together, we tend to to fight more. Mm. But when it's some other kind of configuration, like if I'm with one of my daughters, or if any any of us are sort of one-on-one with one another, we're great. Even sometimes when we're two daughters and just me or Margie and myself and one of our daughters. It's a good configuration. And I, I wonder sometimes if that is a holdover from the times when there were just three of us at a time rather than four of us. I mean, in, in some ways, it's, it's a little crazy that the four of us, <laughs> when we're together, tend to get along least well. But on the other hand, it's kind of great that we all have this kind of bonding time with the individual members of our family. And that's really special. So like my older daughter who's 17 now, Shoshi, she has this habit of coming to me later in the evening and just wanting to chat. And I love it. You know, I think it's a wonderful time for just the two of us. I remember when my first daughter was born. A good friend of mine, Judy Goldman, she, she had two daughters and she said, well, the one parenting thing I remember is that late at night when your, your child wants to talk to you, that's the time you really have to listen. And I've always kept that in mind. Yeah. That's a good thing to, to hear and to remind myself of. We're still just a year into family of Fordham. And it's a very different dynamic already. I can see how it's a different, it's a different dynamic now. And sibling rivalry is <laughs> real. <laughs> yes. And that sense of being injured that another child was born and supplanted your place is a real thing, something that has to be negotiated forever. <laughs> forever. Yes, indeed, forever. There are a couple other moments in the book that I, I wanted to point to and just ask you a little bit about because they stuck with me. One thing is that you're talking about not just your relationships with your family members and how those all sort of impacted your time in, in Singapore, but also in the prologue, you write about a larger shift that happened. And, and one of the things you write is after nearly six years of living in Singapore, 
I'm not much closer to answers about my own sense of belonging or where I belong, but I can say this with certainty. Leaving my birth country has served as my means of confronting the complexities of my own identity. I thought that was really interesting, especially coming from a person who had done so much travel prior. And it it had me thinking about a different moment in the book, in the essay, Mr. Chen's Mountain. And I was wondering if you could read a paragraph from that. Mm-hmm. Lee recalls a saying, if you spend a day in China, you can write a book. If you spend a month, you can write an article. If you spend a year, you can't write anything. The same can probably be said for America, where I've lived for most of my life. It baffles me more than ever, the older I get. Somehow, the people with the least experience of a country tend to have the most opinions about it. The same is true of individuals. We tend to judge most heavily those we know the least. The richer or more famous, the less we know them. Fame is a form, perhaps the worst form, of incomprehension, Jorge Luis Borges once wrote. The way in which you extended that principle to to thinking about your own country, but also Mm -hmm. to individuals, it had me thinking back to this moment in the prologue where you talked about those years in Singapore being your means of confronting the complexities of your own identity. And I guess I was wondering how, if at all, you feel like that saying translates into oneself. You know, I think uncertainty is something that more people should embrace. Mm -hmm. This idea that everything you know is right and that you're right, other people are wrong, is what gets a lot of the world in so much trouble. The world and even ourselves are incredibly complex, and we don't know ourselves always or even often. Uh, I love this quote of Kafka's, what do I have in common with the Jews? I don't even have anything in common with myself. And, (laughs) you know, and I love that. Uh, He's one of my favorite authors. That kind of uncertainty translates into a largeness of the way we experience the world, a kind of expansive way of seeing others with uh, intellectual curiosity. We're informed constantly by these interactions with other people, and it allows us to have a kind of nimble view of ourselves and ourselves mm-hmm. in the world. I was thinking also about what it was that compelled me to, to want to talk to you in this, in this context. One of the things that came up in the book in Survivor Stories, which is just a really remarkable essay about the legacies of World War II. I just looked at this one tiny sentence in it. I believe in the idea of beshert, the Yiddish word for destiny or fate, that if you are receptive, you will learn things you didn't know you needed to know. Having been fortunate enough to have traveled with you, it, it, it struck me that this idea seems to drive you probably as a, as a traveler, but also as a teacher. You really encourage your students to approach both travel and writing in a similar way with this kind of openness and receptivity that is more important than any kind of pointed searching. Mm. And that's something that I've certainly appreciated about you as a teacher. And I was wondering how, if at all, that that translates into your parenting and if there is a way in which you communicate or encourage this particular relationship with the world to your daughters. Yeah, well... Thanks. Yes, they 
do. I don't know if it's because of me or whatever, but my kids are really receptive to the world and I'm very proud of the way they look at it and the way they look at experience. I mean, there's that old maxim, experience is the best teacher. I tend to feel that to some extent. I, I'm also, though, a bit of a worrier and uh, I don't, I, I, you know, I worry about my kids out in the world, of course, but I think that they're really smart and I try to listen to them, how they view the world. You know, I take it seriously and take seriously their explorations as they sort of discover things about the world. They, they don't come to me for advice or anything like that. If I give them advice, they roll their eyes. But I try to sort of model, I guess, a kind of behavior that's a little risk-taking, adventurous, and definitely open to the world and understanding that if you're open to it, things will come your way. I mean, not always great things, but you know, you, you do learn from experience. My mother and my grandmother were both very, very adventurous people, but also terrified of me being adventurous. Mm. You know, my mother went to Mexico as a single woman right after World War II, after studying at Black Mountain College with Robert Motherwell. She then just took a bus to Mexico and lived there and wrote her first novel. My grandmother, she was very adventurous too. She was widowed very early and put our whole family through the Great Depression as a teacher. But they were terrified of me having experiences. So I grew up thinking I wasn't a very adventurous person. And to my surprise, I learned that I was, <laughs> and that I was really a risk taker, and that things that I really value as important experiences in my life probably would have horrified my mother and grandmother. I don't, you know, hold any rancor at all. They were just, you know, they just wanted to protect me. But I think that sometimes that sense of protection can really go overboard, and you just have to let your kids negotiate their own way in the world to some extent, negotiate how they view the world, if they view it as a kind of untamed wilderness that they're terrified of, or if they, you know, want to be trailblazers or somewhere in the middle or whatever, but they're not going to necessarily see the world the way you do. Mm -hmm. How did you discover that you are adventurous? Ah, uh, gosh, I think, you know, I, I wish I had discovered it earlier, but I think it was only a, kind of about 20 years ago or a little, little more than that. Maybe the first time I went to the Philippines and was working on my book about this purported anthropological hoax there. And I just found myself in very strange situations, uh, one point in the mountains with um, a rifle being held on me. And I didn't freak out. I didn't, I didn't think, oh my God, you know, what have I done in this situation? I was pretty level-headed <laughs> and that surprised me. <laughs> I'm not that I'd necessarily be level-headed in a similar situation today, but you know, I was then. And so it just, it made me understand that I needed to, to experience the world in a, in a way that was different from the way that was taught to me. When I was pregnant with my daughter in California, before I knew we would be coming to Italy, 
I felt strongly that she would need to be raised in a part of America that had a lot of black people. There were whole swaths of the country I wouldn't even consider because they were just too damn white. I feel this way still were I ever to return to America, but I find myself raising her and my son in a country as white as those regions of America I had so confidently discounted. I spent months during that first pregnancy finding a black female pediatrician, and I was happy to imagine my unborn child's first trip to our dentist, a black male graduate of an HBCU. Choices like this felt necessary, urgent, not only because of the importance of countering the negative representation America would undoubtedly continue to force into our lives, but also because of the very real, measurable, and documented inferiority of medical treatment Black Americans receive every damn day. Life in America, as the parent of a Black child I knew, would have to be one lived with intention and vigilance. Yes, Blackness here is rare. But it is not under attack. This country has not spent centuries finding new ingenious ways to perpetuate its subjugation. And so much of what felt so urgent at home feels here to be moot. And I find myself facing an unfamiliar problem. That my children here are growing up as the good kind of black. Not the refugee kind. The American kind. Hence, I find myself thinking of those American children of African immigrants who grow up being told to stay away from the black Americans, that they are not like them, that they are better. Encountering a white world frequently eager to repeat the message. And I realize that here, I face a task I never imagined when I was pregnant with my child. That part of my responsibility will be to teach her to wield her very unique transnational expatriate privilege in pursuit of solidarity. I left this interview feeling somehow bolstered by the late-in-life courage that so dramatically announced itself to Robin, reshaping his life ever after, cautiously optimistic that some of us might experience a learning that could last, that could change something in need of changing, and recommitted to a parenting ethos of trust. Thinking again about my conversation with Andre Perry, about how we were lucky, both in the obvious heterogeneity of our family structure and in the opportunity my children have to build a vision of themselves that is unmolested by the persistent travesties of American life, the chance they have to feel part of something bigger than I have ever known. This is Lynn, day 58, Iowa City, Iowa. When does counting up the days pivot to counting them down? We've been at home since March 16th. Our daycare, which voluntarily closed a week later, announced it will reopen June 1st. But today we told them we won't be back until at least July 1st, since cases are still on the rise in Iowa. Which means a countdown to daycare of 50 days. Are we only at the midpoint of dealing with the mental load of childcare plus work? Or are we not even close to the midpoint? Will July 1st turn into August 1st or later? We have no way of knowing. This is Jeannie, Oakland, California, day 67. Before my son goes to bed, we gather as a family, share things we're thankful for, wrap each other in love for a moment. Each day feels like a mountain climb. 
But here we rest, grateful for the day's gifts, tucking the feeling into our hearts for the next day. Thank you for listening to Pam Parenting. I'll be back in two weeks with Amanda Moore, another American mother in Rome, to talk about the struggle to remain emotionally unified in the internally divisive midst of quarantine abroad and about missing a city's soul. Click the link in the show notes to read more about Robin Hemley's books, to see photos of my guests' lockdown lives. Follow the show on Instagram, at Pan Parenting. And if you have thoughts to share in this episode or want to share your own 30-second dispatch, email a voice memo to info at panparenting.com. To join me on this year-long journey towards fearlessness, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And if you like what you hear, please take some time to rate and review the podcast, which helps others find it. Thank you to everyone who has lent their ears. Your act of witness keeps this quest alive. I like to read books. I like to do yoga. I like to make art because it makes me so happy.